0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, and if you're able, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're looking today at how God orchestrates His plan. And the Word of God is perfect. I'm going to read Acts 21, beginning at verse 27, all the way to chapter 22, verse 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a city of, citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, "'Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you.' When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, "'I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women,' And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that you are here with us. We thank you for your presence and your power. Pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. God orchestrates his plan. J.I. Packer said, God's world is never friendly to those who forget its maker. Without God, man loses his bearings in this world, and he cannot find them again till he has found the one whose world it is. God made our life, and alone God can tell us the meaning. If we're ever to make sense of this world and ever to make sense of this life, we must know God, and if we want to know God, we must open our Bibles up. The Bible's dominant theme from Genesis to Revelation is this, that beneath and behind and above all the confusion that this world creates is the plan of God, the sovereign unfolding plan of God. And it's a plan to save people through Christ. God governs human affairs with this goal in view. And human history itself is a record of the outworking of God's purposes. That's why history is often called His story. This narrative is, is part of that story continuing. We've gone through uh, the book of Acts, literally verse by verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We have seen uh, Christ's work continuing, that Christ's work through His witnesses for His purposes. And this narrative today that we see is really a screenshot of that plan being orchestrated by God, that Paul in this passage is being accused, he is being arrested, and then addressing the Jews who accused him. And in that, we see some really big truths about God and his plan. The idea behind this passage really is is in this screenshot of a narrative that God is sovereignly orchestrating his plan to accomplish his gospel purposes. And and the reason is that he would receive maximum glory. And I want you first to notice uh, what is going on in verses 27 to 32, where Paul is being accused. They're telling lies about Paul, and it starts with a a reference to seven days. So if you were here with us last week and you were in chapter 21, uh, verses 17 to 26, you'll remember that the seven days were the seven days of purification for Paul and these four Jews that had taken the vow of a Nazarite. They were being consecrated to God. They were committing themselves to God. And every day they would go to the temple. And they would present themselves at the temple. And what we saw last week that was going on in that passage is that God was preserving both truth and unity in the church and out into the world through Paul. Paul cared for the church. God cared for those he was trying to win for Christ. And so he was willing to become all things to all people so that he might win some for Christ and help believers grow in him. And so what happens is at the end of these seven days, when they're almost completed, there are some Jews from Asia who spot Paul in the temple, and they stir up the crowd. They literally tackle Paul. They they seize him, and they scream at the top of their lungs, Help! Help! This is the guy who's been teaching against the law and against the temple. The temple was the center of their lives. They held the temple sacred. This was their holy place. And what they're saying is, He has ruined the temple forever. He has made it common. He has ruined its holiness. We're never going to get the stench out. Gentiles came in. The reason they brought this up was because they had seen Trophimus from Ephesus with Paul out in the city. So they just assume that Paul had brought him into the temple too. That was a capital offense. Now these are Jews, by the way, from Asia, from Ephesus. It's it's kind of ironic uh, that that it's it's them and not the Jerusalem Jews that Paul is trying to reach that are stirring up all this trouble. These are Jews from Ephesus who have rejected Christ as the Messiah, who have resented Paul's uh, influence over their community, and it, it seems as if Paul can't win for trying. The enemy's popping up everywhere, but God is about to use this trouble to get paul and the gospel where he wants them to be now all the city is whipped up into a frenzy and people are running in all directions and they're running at paul they they literally grab paul and drag him out of the temple and then they shut the doors Another ironic thing here is God's ordained messenger for the gospel being locked out of the place where God had mediated his grace for his people for centuries. What we're seeing here is that the temple is no longer the place to receive God's grace. God's grace is now supremely manifested and available only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're trying to kill Paul. This is their aim. This is their goal. They want to kill this guy, and it was within their Jewish legal rights to do so, to execute him for the crime they think he's guilty of. So you've got the Jews on one hand that are stirring things up, but then you've got the Romans. Now the Romans are there in Jerusalem to keep the peace, and they are not looking so kindly on this frenzied mob that's about to dole out you know, blind justice. And so the commander, verse 31, the commander of the Roman troops, and we know his name. We find it out in chapter 23, verse 26, Claudius Lysias. And he's in charge of a thousand soldiers. And he takes some of these soldiers and some centurions that are in charge of a hundred soldiers, and they run down into the crowd. They're coming down two flights of stairs out of their fortress. It's called the Fortress of Antonia. It was located just uh, outside the northwest corner of the temple. Uh, This fortress had four towers. One was 100 feet tall. Literally, the Romans could look down and see what was going on in the temple courts and what the Jews were doing, making sure they were not uh, acting up, but here they were acting up, and the Jews see the Roman soldiers and officers coming down the stairs, and and just like a schoolyard bully who's caught by the principal, they, they just stop beating Paul up. And then we see Paul arrested, verses 33 to 39. Uh, The tribune basically delivers his life, arrests him, puts him on two chains, and he's thinking to himself, this guy's obviously a troublemaker, he needs to be locked up. And he asks, who is this guy? He has no idea. Well, he thinks he knows. Who is this guy and what'd he do wrong? And people are shouting one thing, people are shouting another. Uh, Nobody really knows, and it's total you know, pandemonium, total bedlam, confusion, and he cannot figure it out because the uproar is so loud, it's a riotous situation, he can't figure out who Paul is. So he brings him into the barracks where the soldiers live, and literally, Paul has to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. And the mob is crying out as they're carrying Paul into the barracks. Away with him. Kill him. They weren't just saying, you know, get him out of our sight. They were saying, get him off of earth. (laughs) Kill the guy. They wanted him dead. And and here was Paul experiencing the same response that Jesus experienced when he came into Jerusalem. when they were crying, crucify him. Now Paul speaks Greek to Claudius. And Claudius is surprised, and, and he says, wait a minute. So you're not the Egyptian that caused a big ruckus and a revolt and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? That's not you? And Paul's like, uh, no. I'm, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, um, and I, I ask you, please, let me speak to the people. Now, the Tribune thought he was this Egyptian. Now, Jewish historian Josephus uh, reports uh, about this situation, that there was this Egyptian Jew that w- claimed to be a prophet and gathered a large following uh, and a plan to lead them to the Mount of Olives, and he told them, when I say so, the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall flat. So the guy is, is, uh, is deceiving people, and, and the assassins literally uh, was uh they were called dagger men what they would do is they would have daggers under their cloaks they would go through the crowd and they would literally kill people put their their dagger back in their cloak and then say hey look what just happened and so people were in fear of them and so claudius thinks this is is the guy that uh that ran away because as 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 most of these villain stories go, uh, what happens is, Fee, uh, Felix, who is ruling at that time, chased the 4,000 out into the wilderness, but of course, the Egyptian went free, and uh, he's thinking he's him, and Paul's like, I'm not him, and he asks him, can I, can I please speak to the people? He had to ask permission to speak. They had uh, the power of his life in their hands. They could kill him at a moment's notice, and so He asks if he could speak. He begs the guy to let him speak. Now, if this was you or I and we were in such a situation and we had been beaten up by an angry mob, I'm wondering what our script might be when we want to speak to the people. You know, hey, you shouldn't have done that. You were wrong. Justice must be served. You need to be set straight. I don't know what we would say, but we would probably have a lot of bitterness, maybe some hate going on. And here's Paul about to address the very people who had tried to kill him. So chapter 21, verse 40, all the way to chapter 22, verse 21, Paul is addressing the Jews. He is addressing them, and he motions to them because it's so... uh, noisy, and they're being boisterous, and they quiet down because he addresses them in the Hebrew language, literally Aramaic in the dialect, and he basically calls them brothers and fathers. He's telling them, you know, I'm like you. I'm one of you, except for the chains and except for Christ in him, his hope of glory, and he says, please hear my defense. The Greek word there is apologia, and it's where we get our word apologetics, it literally means, I'm going to now defend the faith against the false accusations. He's not defending himself, he is defending the faith once for all delivered. And so, he begins to speak, and he's going to give his testimony. By the way, this is now the second time in the book of Acts that we find Paul's conversion story uh, out of three times in the book of Acts. The first time when it actually happened, it's recorded in Acts chapter 9. And then later on in Acts chapter 26, he reiterates his, his uh, testimony. Uh, but here he is tailoring his comments to fit this hostile group of Jews in Jerusalem to communicate his conversion to them. And he says, I'm a Jew. And I'm born in Tarsus. If Cilicia is a big city, very notable. But he says, I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was instructed, I was taught, I was educated by Gamaliel. This is like the most famous teacher in the, the Jewish school of Hillel. And so he's telling them, I was a very strict legalistic Pharisee. And I was zealous for God just like you. Now we all know, if you want to look at someone in the Bible that just has a love for Jesus and a love for God, you want to look at Paul. It's so clear in, in the things that the Holy Spirit wrote through him. But when he talks about zeal, it's an entirely different thing. Paul had a passion for God. He had a love for Jesus. But in the Jewish context, zeal was quite different. Zeal was the willingness to resort to violence to protect the Torah. To to basically go outside of God's commands and do whatever you thought was right in order to presumably uphold the truth. The first five books of the Old Testament. And so he says, you're zealous for God. In fact, over in Romans 10, he testifies about the Jews, and he says, I can tell you, they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It's not based on the truth. He goes on. He says, I persecuted the followers of this way. I persecuted believers in Jesus to their death. He is admitting that he was responsible for the murders of Christians. And and by his own admission, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am not worthy to be an apostle. I am the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. He was very ashamed for that. And he never forgot his misdirected zeal, nor did it paralyze him. His murderous past did not paralyze him. It gave him a profound appreciation for God's mercy and grace. When you review your past before you came to know Christ, you, you, you are often going to go to the place of wanting to condemn yourself. And we read in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And You are going to want to feel very ashamed and, and, and wonder how you could ever do such a thing. And it's because, and the things you did, it's because... You're sinful and lost and weak and frail. And without Christ, you have no hope. But it ought to not lead you to despair, but lead you to a deep appreciation of the mercy and the grace of God in Christ. Paul is saying, I persecuted the way to death. Literally, I hunted them down you know, like a deer. I pursued them to kill them, both men and women. And and by the way, Paul says, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, they know all about this. They can testify to it. Verse verse 5, they can testify it. Chapter 22, verse 5. They can testify it. And the reason why they knew is because they gave him permission to do so. So Paul is preaching the gospel to them and also exposing their guilt and you see this in the preaching of the gospel. You've got to expose man's, mankind's guilt and sin because along with the high priest, the Sanhedrin authorized the persecution, authorized the murders, authorized the deaths. I received letters, I, and I'm journeying to Damascus. He has permission to do this, and he's going to take Christians from there and, and throw them in jail. And who were the Christians in Damascus? These were the Christians that were from Jerusalem that had escaped the persecution that was going on There And he is hunting them down like animals. And about noontime, middle of the day, a bright light shines from heaven around Paul. Now this is basically the same account that is given in chapter 9. He falls to the ground, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He answers, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, literally Jesus the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And the people with Paul couldn't understand what was going on. Uh, Paul asked, what shall I do, Lord? Uh, Jesus says, get up and go into Damascus. You'll be told what's been appointed for you. And Paul says, I was blinded. I was blinded by the light, and I was led by the hand. I came into Damascus. And then a man named Ananias, who he points out was a pious, godly Jew, and was well spoken of by the Jews, What he doesn't point out is that this man dearly loved Jesus. This man was saved. And he comes up to Paul and he says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And Paul says, I I got my sight back that very hour. So God heals him of that. And, And the message from Ananias to Paul is God has appointed you. God has taken you into his hands before you ever knew. God has planned. God has purposed. God has determined something about your life. Now Paul's plan, his determination at that point was to pursue Christians and kill them. God's plan and purpose was to capture Paul's heart for the gospel so that he would believe in Jesus and become a witness for Christ. That that he would know his will, that he would see the righteous one. Now that, that was code word for Look at Jeremiah 33, verses 15 and 16, where God promised to raise up a righteous branch to spring up for David, and who would execute justice and righteousness in the world. And the name by which he would be called is the Lord our righteousness. So here is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, being, being uh, spoken of. And Paul would hear a word from Christ's mouth. Paul would be a witness for Christ to everyone of what he had seen and heard. And so the command was, get up and get baptized. And, And the wording here can be confusing to some. It says, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And some people wrongly assume, well, that means when you get baptized, your sins are washed away, which is wrong. Now, grammatically, you look in the Greek in, on this verse, grammatically the phrase, call on the name of the Lord, comes before get up and be baptized. And so it's very clear the rest of the teaching in the New Testament is right in line with this. Salvation comes from calling on the name of the Lord, believing in the finished work of Christ, not by anything you do, including getting baptized. And then in verse 17, Paul says, when I return to Jerusalem, Now, what you wouldn't know is that's a big time lapse there. It's a three-year time lapse. And he goes to Jerusalem for for two weeks to get to know Peter. He had spent time in Damascus. He had spent time in Arabia. Uh, After his uh, conversion, he had spent three years away. He comes back three years later, and he's praying in the temple, and Jesus appears to him in a vision and tells him, get up and go right now. They're not going to be listening to you. And it's interesting the response that Paul has. He says, Lord, they know that in one synagogue after another, I did all this. I beat up those who believed in you. I imprisoned them. When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I approved. Basically, he gave the approval. And in a sense, Paul's thinking, well, wouldn't my testimony be all the more strong with people that I was in league with before that they could see the change in me? And Jesus just tells him, I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. Now as a Jew and as a Pharisee, Paul previously would have had a hatred for Gentiles. Now he has a love for them and so he yields to his sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful Lord Jesus Christ and, and he, he goes along with what, what Jesus tells him. And so we end here at verse 21. But you go on to verse 22, which we'll pick up next week. But it says that up to this word, they listened to him. And then they started crying out, kill him, basically. Let's kill this guy. Uh, He's talking about going to Gentiles. And at this point in time, as God is unveiling his plan, as he's orchestrating his plan, hundreds don't turn to Christ. There aren't hundreds of salvations at this point. Uh, they are enraged and want to kill him. And here is Paul, Christ's witness. Here is Paul, a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord, in a dangerous situation, giving testimony to Jesus of Nazareth, who is alive and who saves and who directs the lives of his people. Here he is making a defense for the truth as it's been maligned and he's speaking very clearly of Jesus crucified and risen and exalted he's doing the will of God and, and God is orchestrating his plan through this this hard time for Paul to accomplish his gospel purposes and 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 God's arranging all of this. God's directing all of it. It's like he he masterminds the plan. He mobilizes those pieces in the plan and then manages everything as the plan unfolds. So you see Paul in this this screenshot here. You see Paul accused, arrested, addressing the accusers, and what you find is some really big ideas about God. I'm going to give you three. If you boil this down to the simplest terms, here's what you've got. Number one, and we see this as God is orchestrating his plan, just even in this screenshot of a a narration. God is big. God is big. God is in control of this situation. The Jews were not planning this out. They wouldn't want the gospel to succeed. Paul could never have figured out this kind of trajectory and these, all these different turns and curves and ups and downs uh, to create some kind of gospel opportunity. God, who is big, and by the way, bigger than we know. As big as you think God is, he's bigger. Psalm 19.1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. You've got the The stars and and the moon and the sun and all this uh, declaring God's glory. Which in that you see one of the purposes for the universe. To reveal God's majesty, to reveal his glory. And you can see it in all of creation. You can see uh, his glory in the intricacy of a living cell. You can see his glory in the complexity and diversity of life on earth. You can see his glory in the precision of the laws of physics and chemistry. And it indicates to us the incomprehensible power of God, how big God is. And you think of of the universe he created. God made the universe unimaginably large. And it's, it's quite staggering when you think about the universe containing objects of size at distances that our brains, our minds cannot fathom. Even the smartest among us. We kind of just have to throw up our hands and say, I I can't grasp that. And you consider the power of God, you consider the bigness of God, you can only be humbled. There's no room for pride. You consider the size and the beauty of the the universe God created. It helps you appreciate his, his bigness. Let's start closest to home. you got the moon, about the size of the United States. Approximately 2,100 miles in diameter. It orbits 240,000 miles from Earth, which you could probably understand because some of your cars have that many miles on it. But then there's the sun, a glowing hot ball of hydrogen gas. It gets its energy from the fusion of hydrogen to helium in the core. It's basically a stable hydrogen bomb. You get the sun that God put up there, and, and he placed it at just the right distance to provide the right amount of light and heat for the earth, and the sun is 400 times further from earth than the moon, and 400 times larger, over 100 times the diameter of earth. If it were hollow, you could put a million earths in it. God created that just as easily as he created the rest of the universe. It was not difficult for him, and it demonstrates his power. It's 93 mi- mi- million miles away, by the way. If you, if you said, you know what, I'm going to try to drive 93 million miles, and you get in your car and you drive 65 miles an hour, it would take you 163 years to drive that far. It would out- outlive your lifetime. And then you think of our galaxy, the Milky Way, containing over 100 billion stars. And the Bible tells us God calls them all by name. He named the, every star. He's bigger than you think. Here's this amazing God, this huge God who created such a universe, and and then you get to this thought. And he is concerned with me? That's what the psalmist even said. Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And we see in this passage, even in, in a screenshot such as this, and you see it in your life. God is big. He orchestrates His plan in ways that we, we never could imagine. The second thing is that God, who is big, has a big plan. He has a big plan to save lost sinners, to, to save lost, help bent sinners. Through the shed blood of Christ, making them his witnesses to a waiting world, to a wondering world. And this plan was set in motion, this big plan was set in motion before the foundation of the world. And even around about the time of Abraham, God visits him and leads him to Canaan and enters a covenant relationship with him and his descendants. And he tells him, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you, I will be your God. And, and God gives Abraham a son and turns his family into a nation and leads them out of Egypt. And, and over the centuries, he's preparing them and the Gentiles for the coming of the Savior King, who Peter tells us was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but manifest in these last times who, for you who believe by God in him. Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is God's big plan unfolding. Now, the plan is for the gospel to go to all the ends of the earth, from India and beyond, and, and, and that the great multitude of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues would be brought to faith in Christ. And then Christ's return, and we who believe will be with him where the throne of God and the Lamb are, and we will serve him, as Revelation 22 tells us, we will see his face, and we will reign forever and ever with him. And man may defy that plan and even reject God's plan because of unbelief. Well, he cannot escape it. No one can escape that. Because even one aspect of his plan is judgment on sin. That those who reject the gospel offer of life in Christ bring hell upon themselves. And that those who choose to be without God will get what they want. And that, too, is part of the plan, this big plan that God's will is done no less in the condemnation of unbelievers than in the salvation of those with faith in Christ. And here is Paul, little old Paul, being used as one person in this intricate orchestrated plan. God is saving. But isn't it an interest? Isn't it interesting that the Jews thought it a crime for the Gentile to be within the barrier that was set up in the temple. I just want to think about that for just a moment. Why was it a crime for a Gentile to be outside their little area that the Jews gave them to be in? Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus is our peace, who made both one and broke down the dividing wall and abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, to make for himself one new man, so making peace and reconcile both unto God and one body by the cross. And what he's talking about is taking the enmity that was between Jew and Gentile and abolishing it by his blood at the cross. You start at the beginning of Acts Uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter two, and Paul's making some points that are very clear to us that we were all living in sin and disobedience as Gentiles, but God who loved us showed mercy and saved us by grace. And the dividing wall of separation is broken down. But here's the amazing thing. At that point in time, when Paul was speaking to the Jews, there was a four and a half foot wall dividing the Jews from the Gentiles in the temple. And it was kind of like the Gentiles had a California pass, Southern California pass, and they couldn't go to all the other cool places on all the other cool days because here's what would happen. Sure, the court of the Gentiles, if you behaved, you could be there, but you couldn't go into the inner courts, into the holy area. You could never go into the court of the Israelites. And here's the amazing thing. God never told anyone to build that wall. That was sinful man hating people that God said the Messiah would save. In fact, there were were signs posted. In fact, they found two of these stone signs, and they're in museums, one in Jerusalem and one somewhere else. And here's what one of them said. No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. But God's plan, God's big plan was to save Jew and Gentile alike, all who come to faith in Christ. And God's plan cannot be thwarted by human sin. Human defiance and sin against the revealed will of God is used by God to further his will. It's like Joseph and his brothers back in in Genesis when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And at the end of the story, he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people. It was not you who sent me, but God. God was orchestrating his plan, and the cross is the supreme example, the illustration of the orchestration of God's plan. Jesus, being delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, was killed by evil men. And even there, man's sin is being used to serve God's plan. Because God's plan is going to march on really like a tank, and no one can stop it. God is big, and he has a big plan. And last, third, God is big, and he has a big plan, and he is pleased to use small people in the process. That's you and me. That's Paul. He is going to, as Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will unfold his sovereign will right before your very eyes. We are living in a time of of mystery. Sure, we have the the prophecies fulfilled and we have promises of God being kept, but we are also in a a time of mystery. Think Think of Job. Job was never told, never told what was really going on behind the scenes between between God and and Satan. There was nothing told to Job about that. He just got it all in real time and he would not curse God and die. He would not give up his praise for God because of how good he is. God is big and he has a big plan and he is pleased to use small people in the process. Paul had this humble hope in God he didn't despair, he wasn't defeated, he was hopeful, and it led him to a loving proclamation of eternal truth, because he had love for Jesus, and he had love for other people. It takes us to Romans 5, where Paul said, and by the way, I, I've reminded you about this several times recently, Paul wrote Romans before this place time in Acts, and here's what he said, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul is rejoicing through this time knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And it wasn't just for Paul that the love of God was shed abroad. It was for his countrymen as well. Because when Paul stood up and had permission to speak, he didn't say, you were wrong because you hurt me. He said, you're wrong because you crucified Christ. And you need to believe. He had love for his countrymen. It takes us to Romans 9 where he said, I, if it were possible, I would give up my own salvation for theirs. Romans 10.1, my heart's desire is for their salvation. He was in tears over it. He was crushed over it, the fact that they wouldn't believe. And he was appointed, and he was sent, and he, he was being, he was, he was riding a wave that God had him on, and, and God was using The same means he will use with us. We see it in Romans 10. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who announce peace, who say your God reigns. Here is Paul going through it all with an attitude of love because he wanted them to hear the good news and believe. He didn't care about his pain. He didn't care about his bruises. He didn't care about his feelings. He cared about the fact that God was sovereignly orchestrating human events to accomplish his gospel purposes, and he wanted people to praise the glories of God's grace in Christ. It brings us to Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, whom he foreknew and predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Because God reigns. He is the creator of the earth, of the universe. He is king, and he works all things after the counsel of his own will. It's the decisive point in world history, by the way, the purpose which really controls it and the key to which really interprets it is God's eternal plan. His big plan, because he's a big God, and he uses small people, small people in the process, I think of Mary as we close. I just want you to think of Mary for a moment. Think of Mary in Nazareth. Remember Jesus is from Nazareth. In the 6th month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph who was of the house of David whom had received the promises. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And she's troubled and wondering what's going on. And the angel says, Don't be afraid. You found favor with God. You're going to be used in his sovereignly orchestrated plan. You are going to conceive in your womb. And you will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of the... Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary's like, how can this be? How can this be? And and he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, God in the flesh, God incarnate. And the angel says, nothing will be impossible with God. And here is Mary's response. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word completely yielded to the sovereignly orchestrated plan of God, just like Paul was. Paul and Mary, kind of similar here, in the sense that they were just yielded to the plan and going with what God gave them, and and the attitude was the attitude of Christ. They didn't blame God. They didn't complain. How about you? Your pain, your worries, your troubles, all the things that you were going on... Right now, that God, by the way, is intimately acquainted with and cares about very deeply in your heart and in your life. And can you see that this big God with a big plan wants to use little old you and me to further that plan so that others would praise the glories of the grace of God? That is, you heard me say it so many times only God knows. Only God knows his plan until we see it unfold. But we do know this, his goal in redeeming fallen man is the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory. He rules the world for his glory. His goal is to glorify himself. and My prayer is that our hearts would cry out, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. And Lord, that is our prayer, that is our heart's desire. We praise you that you know all things, you do all things well, you hold all things in your hands, you work all things after the counsel of your will, and you will be glorified. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us in the process as you orchestrate your plan. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.